0: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This month, the office rental company WeWork is expected to list its shares. The firm has come under fire for its unfeasibly high valuation, for the stock structure it's proposing, and for the curious ways of its founder, Adam Newman. But the company might just live up to the hype. And Brexit is making lots of Brits consider how they can hang on to their European citizenship. Some of the country's Jews have an intriguing option, getting Portuguese or Spanish passports. It all goes back to a purge that happened centuries ago. First up, though… The Middle East and global oil markets are reeling after Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure was severely damaged by a huge attack this weekend. On Saturday, missiles hit an oil field and a processing plant in the east of the country. Residents posted video on social media showing explosions interrupting the dawn call to prayer and huge fires raging. Iranian-backed rebels in neighboring Yemen, known as the Houthis, claimed responsibility, but it's uncertain that they carried out the attack. In any case, the bombing seems to be the latest salvo in a simmering proxy battle between Iran and its allies on one side, and America alongside Saudi Arabia on the other.
1: The Houthi rebels in Yemen, who claimed this attack, have attacked Saudi Arabia many times in the past few years, and those attacks have been getting bigger. But what we saw on Saturday was more serious and unusual than anything before. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. It was 800 kilometers into Saudi Arabia, so that's very far in from over the Yemeni border, if if indeed the attack did come from Yemen. And more importantly, it struck what was one of the most important components of Saudi Arabia's oil production capability, uh, uh, both an oil field and a processing plant. And on top of all of that, it risks dramatically escalating tensions between Iran, which supports the Houthi rebels, and America, Saudi Arabia's ally, which is currently strangling Iran's economy with sanctions. So the scope for escalation is now uh, much greater than it was. So um, America backs Saudi Arabia and, and has been uh, working on its policy towards
0: Iran, uh, maximum pressure and, and what have you. How has the Trump administration responded to the attacks?
1: Well, it was over Twitter, of course. Uh, Donald Trump hinted at military action. He said America was locked and loaded. And Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, suggested the strikes didn't come from Yemen. They probably came from Iran, uh, particularly Iran's Revolutionary Guards, or its proxy forces in Iraq, which which are composed of lots of uh, uh, mostly Shia militia groups. Some of the reporting that has come out uh, in the past 24 hours suggests that Iraq might have been the base for the attacks, uh, particularly with Iraqi militia groups eager to retaliate for Israeli strikes on their bases there a few weeks ago, although the Iraqi Prime Minister has denied it. America also said the strikes were very big. They involved both cruise missiles and drones, and lots of them, which may suggest it could have been a little bit beyond the abilities of the Houthis, uh, which again would, would probably point to Iranian culpability, if that's correct. Iran's foreign minister has, of course, denied it. He said Mike Pompeo, the American Secretary of State, had failed at maximum pressure, uh, which is the official U.S. policy on Iran, and had moved now to maximum deceit. So, of course, we see, we see as usual, a complete denial from Iran uh, and lots of finger pointing from America.
0: So with all of that finger pointing going on and, and all, of the, all of the potential for escalation, what, what do you think happens next?
1: Well, if it was Iran, it would be the latest in a series of provocations that we've seen in the region going back to May, when we had uh, alleged attacks on international shipping with mines, we had hostage taking uh, of of international tankers by by Iranian forces, and we had the shoot down of an American drone, which nearly took us to the brink of airstrikes in late June, which were cancelled by Trump on hours notice there had been some hopes in recent weeks that we were potentially seeing a little bit of de-escalation. Mike Pompeo suggested that Donald Trump might meet his Iranian counterpart Hassan Rouhani at the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. That would have been obviously a historic meeting between an American president and an Iranian leader. That looks very unlikely now. Trump has tweeted angrily denying any such thing. And this attack, of course, might represent Iranian hardliners specifically trying to frustrate that sort of diplomacy by Rouhani and others. So I think diplomacy is now is much less likely. It's very hard to conduct any kind of meaningful talks in this in this environment. And there's a risk of escalation either by Saudi Arabia, for whom this is really bad blow, or by America. And I wouldn't rule out military escalation uh, if we find that more evidence comes to light showing Iran's hand in this.
0: So notwithstanding the risks of of greater escalation, as things stand right now, what does all of this mean for Saudi Arabia and for oil production and and for markets?
1: It's a big blow to Saudi Arabia. The attack caused the suspension of production equivalent to about 60% of the kingdom's output, which is about 6% of the world's oil production. As soon as markets opened today in Asia, oil prices soared by about 20%. And reports seem to suggest the repairs are going to take weeks, which means there's going to be quite a long effect on prices.
0: And all of this comes at a time when uh, the the, the Saudi state oil giant Aramco was was looking to, to list to do its initial public offering. How do you think all this will reflect on that?
1: Not terribly well. It is a particularly delicate time for Saudi Arabia, whose state oil company Aramco is by far the world's largest oil company. It was preparing to launch a portion of its shares in what was expected to be the largest initial public offering ever. As part of that, the chairman of Aramco had just been replaced. The energy minister of Saudi Arabia was shunted aside. So investors were already a little concerned about some of the uncertainty. And security of supply is a big concern to potential investors. It lies at the heart of what Saudi Aramco is able to do. It makes Saudi Arabia not just a very big oil producer, but also a critical player in world oil markets, a very important geopolitical player. And so attacks like this one call into question that security of supply and are very bad news for the Saudi leadership.
0: And so what are Saudi Arabia's options here?
1: Well, in some ways, Donald Trump has put the ball into Saudi Arabia's court uh, with his latest tweet. He said the U.S. was waiting to hear from the kingdom as to who they believe was a cause of this attack and under what terms we would proceed. In other words, he's challenging Saudi Arabia to publicly blame Iran in the way that America has uh, and essentially to, to put its cards on the table if it wants to see a robust American reaction. Now, Saudi Arabia usually would fall in line behind America. They are very close US allies. There's a very strong relationship between the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and Donald Trump. In the face of an attack like this they have a very complicated calculation. They absolutely want to push America to throw the gauntlet down to Iran, to put Iran's leadership in its place, to deter Iran from attacks like this. But I think they're also concerned about the prospect of escalation, about the prospect of more oil facilities being struck, missiles falling on Saudi cities, uh, a bigger war that would have a huge impact on their economy, perhaps on their regime. And so this is a crunch point for them. I think they have to decide how much do they want to prod Donald Trump onto action, and how much they want to proceed cautiously, aware of the enormous stakes for the kingdom itself.
0: Shashank, thank you very much for joining
1: us. Thank you very much.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation Bank of America NA, copyright 2024. It's the most talked about initial public offering since Uber, listed in May. For the past nine years, WeWork, whose parent is the We Company, has converted sterile spaces into stylish offices, characterized by glass walls, bean bags, and fruit infused water on tap. It scaled up hugely and is now one of the largest property owners in London and New York. But the lead-up to its IPO has not gone well. A valuation of $47 billion has been slashed. Critics have been lining up to question the company's viability and the fact that it's never turned a profit. And the governance of Adam Newman, WeWork's flamboyant co-founder, has also come under scrutiny. Even its supporters seem nervous. WeWork's major investor SoftBank had reportedly recommended the IPO be put on hold. The company has pressed ahead, saying it'll list its shares on the Nasdaq exchange and today starting a roadshow to drum up investment. Are WeWork's prospects as dire as many are predicting?
2: There's a tremendous amount of skepticism about WeWork, but it's just possible that the critics could be wrong. Vijay Vetiswaran is our U.S. business editor. A lot of the criticism about WeWork has concerned its obscene putative valuation. Something like $47 billion is what SoftBank, its big investors, thought to have recorded in its last investment into the company. But that was never going to be the value that investors in the general marketplace would give it. And sure enough, in their ultimate filing with the NASDAQ, uh, it looks like the company has been ready to accept a much, much lower valuation perhaps as low as $15 billion. So if you take the question of valuation out of it, does it have a sound business? Does it have a path to go from tremendous growth, but unprofitability today, to a viable, profitable business? To me, that's the right question to ask. And I think there, uh, they have a shot. Well, at the
0: center of all the controversy about WeWork is 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 the co-founder, Adam Newman. How much do, do you think confidence in the company depends on confidence in him?
2: I met Adam Newman, and he is quite a charismatic figure. Somewhere between a a rock star and, let's say, an Elon Musk kind of tech savant. We work as the office space of tomorrow. The future is about light, innovation, creativity. It's going from
3: me to we. We give you space that will inspire you.
2: In fact... If you strip away some of the excesses of cult of personality, he talks about elevating civilization through WeWork and his band meet at uh, all of WeWork office events and so on. Uh, If you go actually drill in and see what is he doing as a business person, uh, he's actually quite a shrewd property developer and has come up with a a business model that uh, a number of experts think has actually expanded the total addressable market for temporary office space. So I think he's uh, actually quite important to the future of the company. So why, though, has he been the focus of all of this derision and and
0: cynicism if, in fact, what he's got is a good business plan dressed up with veganism?
2: The challenge is that with this cult of personality has come a, a lot of questionable governance. To give a couple of examples, his wife is not only on the payroll, but in the initial version of the company's filings, had the right to name his successor in case he should die while running the company. There were numerous questionable dealings of uh, related parties, including properties that Mr. Newman himself owned that he leased back to the company, for example, that they've been forced to backtrack on. There are multiple classes of shares with super voting rights and so on. Now, this is something that Google and other companies do have also, but it was taken to an extreme. So in short, Some of the weird and questionable governance practices that the unicorns and Silicon Valley companies have come up with in recent years were taken to an excessive level with WeWork. And it seemed to have been done with very little concern about propriety or corporate governance norms. And I think that was the concern about having Mr. Newman and the way the company wanted to run itself uh, being brought onto public markets where you have to be subject to proper discipline and SEC scrutiny and look out for every investor, not only the privileged. So if there was this this lack of discipline then, the, these, these
0: uncertainties, then why was there so much? Why is there so much interest in the company anyway?
2: This is what a lot of the excessive pessimism about the company misses. If you visit WeWork, and I've visited WeWorks on multiple continents at this stage over the last few years, what you find is that actually they're quite delightful. They put a lot of thought into curating office spaces what you find is a state-of-the-art technology, but also space planning, design, breakout spaces, fruit-infused water. It's just, just a certain joy that you see even amongst ordinary corporate workers at industrial companies. Oftentimes, they prefer to work at the WeWork in a given city than their own company's offices. And I think that's what you find is a, a business rationale that this company is actually that is we work, expanded the total addressable market for office space by making them more enjoyable, uh, by enhancing them with smart technologies, for example, that can remember what height you like your uh, chair and your computer to be at when you walk into a, a shared office space and set the temperature at the right level. Little things like that that make your quality of life better as a worker, but that also give the big employers flexibility so they don't have to lock in the typical 10 or 15 year leases. Something that many employers are interested in, as we look at the prospects of a possible global recession. But all that being said, the company is, has never turned a profit,
0: and uh, you know, at, at the moment, uh, that the the prospects for that are, are kind of in question. Do you
2: do you think that it can? It's an open question. Will they be able to make it to? sustainable prosperity, to profitability that can be sustained before a global recession comes crashing down and brings down the entire property market. This is the open question about WeWork. They argue that, in fact, in a downturn, they have multiple levers to manage their risks. Among other things, they have risk-sharing contracts with landlords, for example, they manage the Brexit-induced downturn in London very well, simply by slowing down the pace of their rollout or construction, and therefore actually have succeeded in London, where perhaps the biggest new landlord in in central London. So they have some answers, but there are still many questions, and a, a global downturn would affect everyone, not only we work.
0: Well, another high-profile IPO this
2: year is, is Uber, and that hasn't gone quite
0: to plan. I wonder how much this one, having garnered so much attention, will be a a statement
2: about the way these things get funded, the way these massive loss-making companies go big. I think this IPO will come to be seen as a verdict on two of the big themes in technology and capitalism of recent years. The first is mega bets on a handful of companies far bigger than what the traditional venture capitalists could make. I think that model is going to be questioned after uh, the poor performance of the Uber IPO and now the disastrous start to WeWork's IPO. The second and slightly broader point is we've come through a number of years in which companies stayed private for much, much longer than uh, historically seen. The age of the unicorn, as they've been called, even the age of the Decacorn, that is companies that are private worth 10 billion or more. And I think we are really seeing with WeWork sputtering to its IPO, if indeed that's what ultimately happens, at the end of the unicorn age. Okay, okay fair enough. But would, would you put your money into WeWork? I don't invest in any of the companies I write about. Of course, Jason, you know that. But if I were to speak on behalf of the punter, I would say those that have a dream about the future, that enter casinos and think they're going to bet it all on Red 23, will probably still go into WeWork. Many others will keep their money in their mattress. Ultimately, investing in WeWork remains an act of faith. BJ, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason.
0: For many Britons, the Brexit drama seems like a maze with no way out. Some, though, have a solution in their family trees.
2: Uh, Well, basically, uh, we are handling requests of Jewish people to obtain the Portuguese or the Spanish citizenship.
0: Elon Kassif works for Campus Pass, an Israeli firm that helps manage applications from all over the world, including nervy British clients. By obtaining another European passport, they can maintain free movement within the bloc, regardless of how Britain leaves the European Union. The company saw an uptick in applications under the previous prime minister.
2: we see actually quite immediately this wave of few emails one day after, I don't know, Theresa May or any other politician in the UK talking about the Brexit.
0: For a lot of the applicants, the only connection they have to Spain or Portugal and their sole qualification for citizenship is that their ancestors were expelled centuries ago. Tim Wyatt writes about religion for The Economist.
3: So back in 2015, both Spain and Portugal passed laws, which they hoped would act as a kind of recompense, as an almost an act of apology to the Sephardic Jewish communities who they expelled over 500 years ago during the Spanish Inquisition. Sephardic Jews are any Jews whose families originally came from the Iberian Peninsula, so that's modern-day Spain and Portugal. Following the Spanish Inquisition, they were spread across the Mediterranean world and, and further afield.
0: And so what does one have to do in order to to, to fulfill the rules that that Spain and Portugal have put into into place?
3: So each country has slightly different criteria, but in general, what you need to do is show that one of your ancestors was one of those people who was expelled in the 1490s. This can often be as simple as, as looking at your surname, but also you can look through synagogue records and other kind of genealogical research to try and show that at least one member of your very extended family was part of those communities who were expelled. And Spain actually asked for an additional step, which is you need to take a cultural and a language exam.
0: And and how many people are, are pursuing this route?
3: It's not exactly clear. We know that about 400 or so British Jews, Sephardi Jews, have Gone down the Portuguese route. At least we have those figures from the uh, Jewish community in Porto, which is one of the biggest in, in Portugal. The Spanish route, because of its more strict conditions on having a bit of a language and the cultural exam, is less popular. We think it's probably only in the dozens. It's quite hard to say.
0: You say that it's well can be straightforward from a paperwork point of view. Is it is it costly?
3: Yes, it is. It is quite costly. We're talking in the in the thousands of. Of pounds, I spoke with one Jewish person from North London who said that she had applied for passports for herself and for her children, and it came to a total of more than 10,000 pounds. so it's not a cheap route by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Well quite and, and I, I wonder about is, is this just is this just a manifestation of, of brexit anxiety? Is, is that the lengths that people will go to just to, to continue to be European citizens?
3: Yeah, a lot of this is a response to Brexit, in particular the growing threat of no-deal Brexit. Some of the Sephardi Jews that I spoke with said that they were very passionate about trying to retain freedom of movement. They see themselves as internationalist, cosmopolitan people. and, And so it's a reaction against what they see as a kind of Little Englander nationalism about Brexit. Of course, the other thing that's worth mentioning is that it's not just Brexit that is behind this, a connected Issue is, is the rising tide of anti Semitism that we've seen in the UK in recent years. Of course, we've seen, particularly with the Labour Party, it's been engulfed in, in criticisms about growing anti Semitism among some of its membership and the leadership's inability to get a grip on that. But also, charities such as the Community Security Trust, which is a charity which monitors hate crimes against Jews, said there was actually a record number of anti Semitic incidents in the first half of 2019. And I think as people feel that simply being publicly Jewish, is no longer quite as safe as it once was. It's perhaps understandable that some of them might look to see if there are other places they could live, even if it's only a last resort.
0: But, I mean, uh, Britain is not the only place where there there are signs that anti-Semitism is on the rise. Surely it's not just Britons who who are pursuing this route.
3: No, of course. And in fact, it's only fair to say that when you look at the, the limited figures that have come out from the Portuguese and Spanish authorities, British people are in a tiny minority when it comes to those who have taken up this offer. The figures show that the largest numbers are people coming from countries such as Turkey or Venezuela, where there are significantly greater pressures on, on Jews there, and also places like Morocco and North Africa or Greece and Turkey, where there are much larger Sephardic populations than you would find in Britain.
0: Tim, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Oh, it be a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.